Hi, Mootloo. Oh, hi, Spike. Oh, hi. How are oh, you? There. Hey, bud. Now Ooh. it sounds normal. Now it sounds oh, normal. wow. Welcome wow, wow, to wow. the Carl Andrew Record Club and Music Podcast from the Rights Ricky Sanchez. I am Spike, along with Mootloo, as we count down the days to the live Carl, mm-hmm. which is coming up November 19th at the World Cafe live in Philadelphia. And tickets are 15 bucks. If you already got tickets for the April show, I can't, I can't even remember when it was. It was April, right? Uh, May. May. For the <laughs> it's May show. a long show, time ago. It was a long for the time May ago. show. For the May show. They will be good. But if you don't have tickets, please uh, get them now. Mootloosounds.com. We'll have a good time. Moot will do a, a little solo set. Then I'll come up, ruin the thing. We'll uh, <laughs> we'll talk about some music. Moot will do some covers from some of the records we talk about. Moot will do some sitcom songs oh, yeah. if, I, if I push them into it. And we'll have a great time. Oh, so. no, it's all about building up to the sitcom songs. The sitcom songs. See, yeah. this is going to realize something for me because occasionally at my shows, especially if it's like my own night, I'll, I'll you know, bust out a sitcom song or two. Mm-hmm. But, and then I get into this conversation sometimes about, you know, at some point I should just do a show of all entirely sitcom, sitcom songs. songs. So we're kind of going to achieve some version of that. Yeah. I, Certainly I, more than I've ever done at a regular show. The sitcom, uh, the sitcom <laughs> show would cry. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So we are a music appreciation pod. We talk about a couple albums every week. The goal is to turn each other on. I don't like that fucking phrase. I mean, not that that there would be anything wrong with it, but but the the goal is right. Like back in the day when we were, when we were learning about music, we used to, we used to learn about music by other people telling us, Hey, you should listen to this. Hey, you should listen to that. There were no, no Spotify's, no apples. And that is the pure way to like music and uh, give it a chance, right? Like when you used to go buy an album on a Monday night at midnight, when it came out, you would give it weeks before, you know, you gave up on it. Now, if you listen to it for a second, you don't like it, you give up. So our goal is to suggest albums to each other, suggest them to you, you suggest them to us, we listen to them, we talk about them. That's what it's about, right? Um, It's been good so far. Man, there's so much music that I've heard. I mean, we've done 93, I think this is episode number 93. 93, closing in on 100 episodes, man. Are we, uh, what are we doing? I mean, I know we have our show. Hmm. Uh, what are episode. we doing for the hundredth episode? That's going to probably be we do it closer no to the new on. year. No clothes on. No. <laughs> <laughs> or all hot dog suits. All hot. Yeah, we could do. We could do it yeah. in a hot dog suit. I'm a so, bigger uh, guy. Do they have XL hot dog suits? I'm sure. Yeah, I can get you an XL. Or hot maybe dog an XXL. Suit. I don't know how the hot dog suits run. I yeah, well, I'll get you one that fits. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, 93 episodes, we, and for the first, you know, few months, we did three albums an episode. So, I mean, we're probably over 200 albums we've talked about and suggested. And that's, uh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of music, man. A lot of music. Uh, most of it that I either had never listened to or had never really paid attention to, you know. So, so it's been good shit, man. Really good shit. So. Absolutely. And one thing I'll say is what I've, the feedback I've gotten from people is people don't really listen to our show necessarily in a linear way. I'm sure some no. folks do. Yeah. But what tends to happen is when people first discover it, they'll go back through the catalog and hone in on an episode where we're discussing a record that really means a lot to them. Yeah, that they like. Yeah. Exactly. And so if you're new, if you just started listening, it'd be worthwhile to go back and sift through all those previous episodes because there's, I mean, there's so many conversations we've had about so many records at this point. Yep, and uh, you know, I think the most exciting part is when we both discover 
something new that we love from a listener pick. I mean, that's a Absolutely. big part of this whole thing. So Absolutely. You can either scroll through the pods or go to carlandryrecordclub.com. There's less. If you want to suggest an album, so this is fueled on your album suggestions to a uh, to a degree, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple and leave it in the reviews. You just scroll down on Apple, go to the pod right now, scroll down. See where it says leave a review, leave it, give us five stars and leave it in there. Or if you don't use Apple, you can go to carlandrewrecordclub.com. I think Spotify also has a um, a notes feature or something. I don't know. Is that a new? Because that's one thing that frustrates me is that there isn't that same engagement. Feature. Like it'd be nice if we could send people, because I know some people listen to our pod on Spotify. On Spotify. Or you could just, you know, just, or just go to the, if you go to the website, there's a contact link. You can do it right there. So anyway, we have two albums to talk about this week. That is Mutlu, it's Mutlu's week. Mutlu and I switch off. So he has Tribe Called Quest Low End Theory from 1991. And the listener album comes from Apple Podcast user Ben. And he suggested the Black Keys Brothers from 2010. Actually suggested a bunch of albums. Maxwell, Biggie. Actually suggested Midnight Marauders, another Tribe ah, album. I yeah. almost picked that one. It was between Low End and... Midnight Marauders, Midnight Marauders, great album. That's the one with a war tour on it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Midnight Marauders. So, so thank you, thank you, Ben. And um, actually, before we go, should I tell you about? I went to see Butch Walker this week. Well, we'll yeah. do it in between. We'll do it in between records. We'll do it in. Between yeah. Well, records. I was actually going to ask you about that. So you did end up making it to the show. I did. I did. It was a struggle. It's always a struggle for me <laughs> right now. And I'm always glad. We'll talk about it later. I'm always glad when I get there. But getting there is just. It's work, man. And and that weekend, the weekend when I saw him, it was even more work because it was a busy weekend. But anyway, why don't we start with why don't we start with Black Keys and then we'll do the butch and then we'll go to tribe. Is that sounds cool? good? Sounds good. Black Keys, obviously you are aware of Black of course. Keys. It would be impossible yes. not to be. I am aware of Black Keys. I will say though, that uh, their general sound is not, like I've only heard what I've heard on the radio because it was never something that was, uh, it was a sonically was something I was particularly interested in. It was, it's been neat to see how enormous they are. Like they play arenas, absolutely huge, but has never been something that I'm particularly into. I have an aversion to things that I think, and I'm not saying this is what the Black Keys do, I'm saying this is what my perception was. My perception was like, oh, there's another classic rock ripoff band or whatever, like that they sound like classic rock. Like, and I just think to myself, I've been through that. I'm sure that every time I've heard them, I'm like, oh, this sounds fine to me. This, like, this sounds good, but it sounds like something that I already know. So I haven't listened before. So I was interested to get into this, to actually give it the chance. Cause one of our rules is we want to go through, not that we're going to give everything a glowing review, but the, the goal is to give it a chance and find something that you do like about it, even if it's not your thing, which this was, um, where were they for you as, as a band? Well, I think I was in a similar, I, I like them. Okay. I think I had some just very general awareness of them, but then I inadvertently ended up seeing them live. This was years ago, at least a decade ago. Uh, I played at this Gulf Shores Festival with Amos. I sang okay. with him there. And then I think... 
I guess we, was it the same day or maybe we even stayed an extra day and just got to check out some of the bands and I okay. watched their set side stage. And I mean, they crushed I was it. blown away. They crushed it in front okay. of thousands of people. Uh, and there are points in the show where just the two of them, other points where they'd have a bassist and a keyboard player come up. I think after I saw them, then I was like, oh, wow. Okay, these guys are for real. And then, even then, I never really did a deep dive, but I think I have been more of a fan maybe since then. But I think initially I was, yeah, I think that was what kind of won me over. So Black Keys officially are a duo. Dan Auerbach is guitars and vocals. Patrick Carney is drums. They grew up together. They're just kids from Akron. They're just a kid from oh, Akron. Oh, really? Yeah, Aren't you just the, I thought you were. I am also just a kid from Akron and <laughs> also LeBron James, also a kid from Akron. But the, the the most notable kids from Akron, Dan Auerbach, Patrick Carney, me. So they, <laughs> they, they're friends from when they were kids and then they, like kids, kids. And then they went to high school together. They actually both even went to the University of Akron and they both dropped out. So amazing to grow up with somebody and then go to college with that person and then also end up in a band with that person and have a successful <laughs> band with that person. And they're the only two people in the band. It's, it's like unbelievable. So they, they were like, they started like playing together and they realized that they were never gonna get anywhere unless they recorded a demo. So they were going to record the demo in Dan Auerbach's basement and it was up to Patrick Carney to get other musicians to come and record with them. None of the musicians show up to their <laughs> recording session. So these guys they, weren't that popular, I guess. What, I what, guess what? I guess not. <laughs> well, you've been in bands. They're not the most responsible people in the world. That's like, true. Pe people in bands. You know, it's. It, <laughs> I tour solo, man. I don't even yeah. have a band. <laughs> I, I'll never forget. So I was in a, a a bad cover band for I don't know a year, year and a half, or whatever, and. You, you know, we don't go back, back. You know me pretty well. And and I am, like, there's, the, in a band, there's usually somebody who turns into, like, sort of the, like, the boss of the band or whatever. Yeah, you know, it has so, to be a sort of an alpha. A yeah, books the practice thing, like, blah, blah, blah. So, naturally, that becomes me. The people in the band made me so mad, like, being <laughs> late, that I, one time, that I remember quitting the band. We were playing the song Click, Click, Boom by Saliva. And our drummer was late again. And he lied about why he was late. And I knew he lied about why he was late. Oh, wow. And he fucked up the same part in Click, Click, Boom three times. And I said, I'm done. And I left. And I quit the band in the middle of practice. And that was it? Never to return? I never returned, no. they, the, they You were not to reconcile? No. They, they, and one of the guys in the band was my roommate. <laughs> but I think he understood. Yeah, he understood. He understood. And they, they practiced together for a little while, but they never played any more gigs at the Pirate's Den in Gloucester City, New Jersey. So like they did with me. So anyway, they record their demo just as a duo, as two people. And uh, they get a deal with an indie label. And then when they went to record their first album, so that that first demo was done in Auerbach's basement and they record their first album in Patrick Carney's basement on an eight track recorder. And they actually start to gain traction and they get signed to, a, I wouldn't say a huge indie label, but Fat Possum Records is a label that, oh, yeah. uh, that Legit. Legit. you know, most people have heard of. And then they record their second album for Fat Possum in Carney's basement 
in one day. They record the entire <laughs> album in one day. And it really started to hit for them. They started to become like a critic's darling and they, they got on some good tours. They toured with Slater Kinney. They played some bigger festivals and they ended up doing two more records for Fat Possum. I think the second one was a, a live record, which finished out their deal. And then they signed with none such records, which is Warner, which is right. a, an imprint from Warner. Another so, uh, very prestigious label. Yeah, so they signed to a major. They record an album called Attack and Release, which was produced by Danger Mouse, obviously enormously famous producer. And they almost actually like, seemed like they almost actually broke up. Dan Auerbach went and did a solo record that he didn't really talk to Pat Carney about, and it caused friction. Also at the time, Carney was like in the middle of getting a divorce, which made him even, I guess, more like emotional about the entire, emotional about the entire thing. There you go. But they, they reconcile and they moved to Nashville and they went to record this album in 2010, Brothers, the one we're talking about, in Alabama at a studio that seems legendary. I wonder if you've heard of it, Muscle Shoals Sound oh, Studio. Oh yeah, oh, okay. legendary. One of the great, so many great soul records were made there. So it seems like, uh, so this is from the Muscle Shoals website. Muscle, Muscle Shoals Sound Studio opened in early 1969 by the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, also known as the Swampers. David Hood on bass, Jimmy Johnson on rhythm guitar, the, the former Cowboys coach, Roger Hawkins on drums, Barry Beckett on keys, and they began working together at Rick Hall's Rick Hall's Fame Studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where they became well-renowned in the recording industry for playing a unique style of funky R&B with such artists as Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, and Etta James. The musicians decided to become entrepreneurs, leaving their positions at Fame and opening up their own studio at 3614 Jackson Highway in Sheffield, Alabama, establishing Muscle Shoals Sound Studio. This studio was unique because it was the only recording studio owned and operated by the session musicians at the time. The four musicians were equal partners in the endeavor, not only as studio musicians, but also booking sessions, paying the bills and handling all aspects of running a business. So almost like a collective, you know, owning and running this studio. And that's where they went to record it. They, a, a, a truly unique way of recording. They got up every morning and they went to Cracker Barrel before... <laughs> Uh, recorded. They stayed at a, I think a Sheraton or something next near the, the studio. They had a Cracker Barrel every morning at 10 a.m. And then they went to record the album. The album ends up being enormous. And yeah. they had already had a bit of a, a glow up, but this album becomes huge. Their first single, Tighten Up. hit at alternative radio even if you don't think you know it you definitely know it it's a, a song that instantly you recognize they win an mtv video music award it, it ends up topping out at number three on billboard and they win three grammys for the wow. album including best rock performance so it is certainly in the vein the album itself 
And of course, Black Keys still to this day enormous, enormous rock. Yeah, they they just wrapped up an arena tour. I think they had. Uh, I mean, it was pretty extensive. Yeah. Uh, they had Band of Horses, I think, as their support act. Oh wow, they're still around. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I think they are. I mean, I don't, I don't know if they've made as many records. It's pretty much the one guy, I think, at this point. I didn't know that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, they just had finished up a huge tour. I remember seeing the schedules, like all arenas, like just huge sheds and arenas. I guess you could put them in the sort of garage rock category with another duo. You put them with White Stripes. You could put them with the Hives. You could Hasn't there been with... some beef with the oh, are White they? Stripes and Blackies? I believe so. Yeah, Jack White, I think at one point in time, <laughs> accused them of sort of ripping his style. Uh, he's a dickhead, so... <laughs> He didn't invent. I got news for you. This style yeah, he was invented. Invent the blue, he didn't invent the blues. Yeah, yeah long so. before him. What a fuck face. Just yeah. There's been some animosity there. Then I heard they reconciled and uh, uh, and then they kind of or they sort of became friends. And there was some more beef. I don't know. You don't hear well, a lot about beefs in alternative rock world. You know, simply too much friction between black and white in our uh, in our country today. We cannot have the white stripes and the black keys feuding at all. The, I mean, is and they're not really similar. I don't. I don't. There are moments where sonically I can hear it, but to me, the Black Keys, and and this is what I was going to say, is far more, far more reminiscent of classic rock than someone like the White Stripes. And like to me, someone like bands like the Hives or the White Stripes, they're not punk bands, but like that's where they like drift to me like if you're going to liken it to another kind of music i feel like its heart is in punk whereas the black keys obviously there's as you mentioned there's a lot of blues influence to um to the white stripes as well but like there's far more classic rock in the black keys and there's even far more groove and r&b and soul in the black keys than in those other bands so while there is a sonic similarity between the Black Keys and other garage bands, I don't, I don't, I don't hear them the same way. Is that a I fair way of describing? Yeah, absolutely. That's right on point. It, it's more cosmetic. It's yeah. more the they've both utilized sort of the lo-fi, sort of garage rock aesthetic, recording wise. Yeah. And they're a duo. They're both a duo. But yes. that aside, it's all cosmetic. When you get to the nuts and bolts, to the heart of what the music actually is, I agree. They're coming from very different places. I enjoyed this record quite a bit. Now, it is a, I guess, I think it's a little, it's a, a, a big piece of music. You know, it's 15 tracks and almost an hour long. And it's not like an hour is, is a long album, but I, I, as you're going through it, there's, it's just a lot of music in the album. So it, it wasn't like I loved the entire thing. However, I, there were so many moments on it that I thought were super cool, and it starts right away. Everlasting Light, the first song. that and I actually I almost think 
it has like the groove or the beat of a hip hop song. Like you could you could loop that and turn it into a really cool hip hop song. Like we're talking oh, yeah. about, you know, a Tribe Called Quest later, but that's a great tune, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a monster way. It's a monster track to to start the album. It's literally the first note that I had and uh, and I remember watching them play that that song. That one in Tighten Up, I remember seeing mm. live and seeing the reaction. Yeah, from all these kids, like thousands of kids at this festival. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a powerhouse intro or opening to the album. And then there's another thing you notice in the album that I'll point out in Howling for you, which is another song that you probably know if you've just been alive and listened to music over the last ten years. They, like other bands that we've mentioned, have a way of writing songs where there are like six hooks in the song somehow. And Howling For You, there's so many different parts in the song that can that are earwormy, that get into your head from little musical parts to, to vocal arrangements to, and it's not like your normal classic verse, chorus, verse song where like the hook is just in your head. It's almost like everything is in your head it's like they're cheating or something like that. That's how many hooks are in the song, you know? I think it's an extension of the blues still, the blues tradition of you build a melody off the instrumental riff. Mm. So I think they're great. I think Dan Auerbach is great at coming up with guitar riffs. And if you notice, when you really dig in, a lot of the songs the vocal melody is kind of an extension of the guitar yeah, riff. So if sure. he's got, like you said, if he's got six different guitar riffs or musical ideas, they're all kind of hooky. I think it's just like, it's instinctive for him. And But I do think it's kind of an extension of the blues. Like you'll hear like, you know, a vocal line that kind of follows the guitar line. Mm, and, yes. uh, and, and that kind of, when you hear that melody in two different contexts, vocal and guitar, it really drives it home. There were two other notes for me on the album song notes. First, the song She's Long Gone. She was made to blow you away. She don't care what any man say. But you can watch her strut, but keep your mouth shut. Or it's room nation day. And that guitar, that guitar lick in there is, that is, it's one point where they, they actually do remind me of the White Stripes. I can't even point out the song, but it's, it's so Hendrixy, even in tone and in style and, but it's so, also so good. I like, you can just feel it from the beginning. It's just a, a again, hooky in a different way, but really catches you, you know? You, you can't escape that song without thinking about the guitar. And the last one is another song that it could be a, a hip hop song to beat Sinister Kid. Well, the crooks are out and the streets are gray. You know I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. Your mother's words, they're, they're ringing still. Is 
fucking awesome. And the the lyrics, like it's it's obviously I, I don't know if it's it's about some it's about like a disturbed person who like is like wants to murder basically. But the like the lyrics are so good. Like your mother's words, they're ringing still, but your mother don't pay our bills. A sinister Damn. kid is a kid who runs to meet his maker, a drop dead sprint from the days born right into his maker's arms. And that's me, that's me, the boy with the broken halo. That's me, the devil won't let me be. That's heavy right there. But see, that that makes me think of, uh, that's the blues too. You've yeah, heard the, yeah, yeah. You know, lyrics like that and some great blues blues artists of the past. But yeah, that's heavy. I mean, that's the thing about them. It's not just all riffs. There's some good mm. lyrics and songwriting in this. Yeah, that's a, a cool tune. I really enjoyed this. I, like there are there are songs that like will will stick with me. Did you enjoy your deep dive into it? Yes, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I agree with you. I just if I only have one minor criticism, it's maybe just that it runs a little long. Yeah, like if you would have edited this record down to even twelve tracks. Yeah, it would forty two minutes or thirty nine minutes or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, and I saw they've gone in that direction now. Their last record. 10 songs, 34 minutes. Mm, so, but uh, in a way though, I like the sprawling nature of this and the standout tracks are just phenomenal. I, you, you touched on a few of them, but uh, I'll get back to Everlasting Light. Mm-hmm. One other point about that song is the way his like falsetto in that track. Now, if you were to hear that recording just with like a clean, polished sonic environment around it, it wouldn't be as compelling because it's kind of this like light falsetto that he has and it's kind of gritty. But somehow the way it's recorded, that kind of lo-fi fuzz that they have on the whole track, it just makes that vocal pop in a different yeah. kind of way. And that's what they're just, I think they're studio masterminds. I know Dan Auerbach is because he produces a lot of other artists. And I know I know he has his own studio in Nashville. But yeah, that's just a phenomenal way. Another song that I love is uh, Next Girl. Yeah, the look on the cake, it ain't, it ain't always. Oh, yes, 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 great tune. That's another, that was stuck in my head, actually, the last few days. That's another example of what I was talking about, where his lead vocal directly mirrors the guitar line. Yep. I mean, he's basically singing along with the guitar line, but he added a lyric and a kind of a vocal pocket to it. And those are some of my favorite moments when when it's almost like the riffs, you can hear how the riffs were the genesis of the song. And then of course tighten up, that's just that just sounds like a hit, right? Yeah. I mean, that has that hit quality. Some songs just have that thing. Yeah. The, and not just because it was a hit, it sounds like a hit. It like, does. You, I I was a, you know, as a music radio programmer for a while and you so the way that it used to work it probably doesn't work this way anywhere anymore is like the record label rep would come to your office and play you a song and try to talk you into playing it or whatever (laughs) and you you wait for those moments where you hit it where they where they where they play it and you're like oh fuck can i play it right now 
Like, can right. you just give it to me so we can put it on right now? And those are the, those are the, I remember a lot of those. And this one, like I can imagine the first time you hear it, you're like, fuck, like it's, this is going to be enormous, you know? It's talking about an earworm. Just that first, I, I guess it's a synth. It almost mm. sounds like a whistle. So whatever yeah. that sound is, it's an odd sound. It stays with you. And then the biggest hook in the song is also an instrumental in the chorus uh, sections. I mean, they write these monster instrumental hooks. Sometimes I think if you were to peel that away, I mean, I, I dig his singing. It's soulful. He's got that bluesy kind of rasp to his voice. But I think it's really the instrumental hooks that put this band over the top and put these songs over the top. And then there are a few moments where they kind of break away from the blues, you know, core blues sound a little bit. They were kind of back to back, the only one and too afraid to love you. Yeah. Uh, those kind of almost go into more of this like psychedelic kind of direction. And it, it for a brief bit, they untether themselves from the core blues sound. But what I like is in a sense, what I like about them is they never go too far from it. It made me think about when you brought in the Cinderella record. And it's like with any rock music, now these guys are rooted in the blues, but even those hard rock metal groups, those hair bands, if I hear the blues and what's happening and you hear that in Cinderella, I'm yep. all in. If I yeah. can always hear the blues as the underpinning of the music, I'm there's all in. A, there's our, our Cinderella reference for the pod. <laughs> it comes up a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. Pat's Chili Dogs. I'll just... Yeah. Maybe we'll... Yeah. There it is. Chili Dogs. Yep. It's an amazing commercial. I would yep. just, if you if you get a second, uh, for those listening, go to YouTube and just yep. look up Cinderella Pat's Chili Dogs. You it'll it's a few it's a minute and a half well spent. Trust me. Yeah, Cinderella hair band that was it comes from <laughs> Delaware County, but a, a great band. But definitely go look up the Pat's Chili Dogs commercial. <laughs> it's an amazing, amazing yeah. commercial. Yeah, this was a, a cool record. I. Again, sonically not right down the middle for me, but but would definitely like I'm at the place now with them where like if a new album dropped and it popped up on my phone, I'd be like, Oh, I'll check this out. Like I'll I'll definitely be interested and I wouldn't have been interested before. Like that's the big difference for me. Yeah, um, I'm glad I finally took some real time with one of their albums because this is a great listen. And I it's just it's soulful, you know. You you said that. That's kind of the big difference with Jack White and Dan Auerbach and the Black Keys is like there's a heavier R&B soul root to this music, and uh, yeah, this is a great listen. And the 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 best tracks are just so undeniable. I mean, <laughs> they all sound like hits. Like said, there's three, four songs that feel like hits when the, the moment you hear them. I hate dancing, but there are many songs on this that you could feel yourself easily dancing to, and like that being a a song on a dance floor. Whereas other bands in this quote unquote genre, I don't think you would find the same thing. The other bands in the genre, almost I I would I would probably mosh before I would dance, right? But right. not with not with this band. Really cool, really cool record. Before we get to a tribe called Quest, I did go see my favorite artist is Butch Walker, a a famous record producer, but also a prolific solo artist. And it I've seen him I don't know, 10 or 15 times. My brother, he usually does a, a pancreatic cancer benefit show. His dad died of pancreatic cancer in the in 
Topanga Canyon in, in, um, in California, like this little amphitheater just sort of like carved into the woods. But I've seen him a bunch of times, but it's been years, obviously. He hasn't, he hasn't toured since, he's done like pop-up shows here and there, done a couple festivals, but this is his first proper tour supporting his new album, Butch Walker is Glenn, which is a piano rock album, sort of like almost like you listen to it. Uh, a coworker, my friend Tom was saying, man, I just put it on, he had never listened to it before. I put it on Saturday with my family and it was just such like an easy listen. It's a very familiar sounding record. Like it is a an obvious nod to the Billy Joel's and Elton John's. The Elton of, John of the element world. is just yeah. undeniable in it. And yeah. in the best way. It's yes. a great example of emulation, not yes. imitation. Because you, you don't lose the Butch Walker personality in it, you know? No, absolutely. And his voice and his songwriting are, are all excellent. And I, he has never been one to shy away from nods to the things that influence him. And and like overt nods. And I, they're not ripoffs because he's doing them on purpose. Like it's part of what he's doing. He's playing tribute to it. So he's doing a tour. I saw him at, he played two nights at the Bowery Ballroom in New York, which I actually went Right before COVID, the last time I was at the Bowery, I saw Noah Cyrus with our friend Jason Lipschitz just days before the uh, the COVID uh, shutdown happened. So the the challenge for me with going to a concert, especially in New York City, is that I live in New Jersey and it's not far, like with no traffic, it's a half an hour. I would say on a normal weekend, it's about an hour, but the show was a Sunday night in New York and I live in Jersey and we were down in Philly for a wedding on Saturday and I had a charity 5K thing on Saturday morning. So I was up, I think 5.30 on Saturday morning, went, did the 5K, went to the wedding, drove wow. back to Jersey, did a Ricky, writes Ricky Sanchez, and then I was gonna have to go into the city. So I know if you're young, this is like not a big deal to you, <laughs> but, and then by the way, Monday morning, have to get up at 4.30 or whatever to go to work. So. But I just kept telling myself, if I go, if there's a much bigger chance I will regret not going than going. Like if I don't go, I will regret it. If I go, there's almost no chance I'll regret it. I'll be tired. That is the worst case scenario. So I did one thing to aid myself is that there was a hotel near my work for 140 bucks. And I was like, if this is what's going to get me to the concert, I'll get the hotel so I can just wake up near work and I don't be right to, there. Yeah, yeah. I don't have to drive back at 10 o'clock and then drive. So, so I did it. The show was awesome. So glad that I went. The new songs translate incredibly well live. He did a thing in the middle where like, if you went to the merch table, there was a, a little piece of paper where you could write down a request and donate to his the Butch Walker Foundation. So in the middle of the show, like he's performing in front of this neon sign that says no requests. And in the middle of the show, the band leaves, he picks up an acoustic guitar, the no flashes out and it just says request. <laughs> and he goes into the, into the, and starts pulling them out. And it's kind of fun whether he's doing it for real or not, because he has an iPad up there with the lyrics to all of the songs because he's got a lot of songs and most of what people request is the old shit. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, I, I just thought like, I thought the entire show was great and I was incredibly glad that, um, that I ended up going. Yeah. And it seems like it was a long time coming. Uh, yeah. 
we we've been talking about Butch Walker, I think, from the very beginning. Yeah. And yep. at the time we started the pod, it had probably I think I remember you saying it had been a few years at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Since he had really been out playing. So it seems like I was looking at the schedule. A lot of these shows are sold out that he's Yeah. Doing. Yeah. He's got a, a like if you go to Butch Walker shows Every time you go to the show, it feels like you recognize seventy-eight percent of the audience. <laughs> that it's like he's got like the the diehards. It was and the opener. I want to give a shout to the opener because the opener actually plays guitar. Ended up playing guitar and and keys in his band. Aaron Lee Tashen. Have I've you heard, heard about? Him? I've heard about him. Yeah. Fucking a wizard, man! Like a great player, a lot of a lot of on stage charisma, but just a a great player, a cool songwriter. I would totally recommend it. But it was a it was a, a great show, and I'm glad I went. And I actually it was funny. Like I woke up not sure if I wanted to go, and then as I was walking out of the show, I was like, "Should I go tomorrow night too?" Um, <laughs> but I'm I'm past that. I don't I don't have that left in my in my bones anymore. But. Uh, but yeah, it was a great show. Um, and that new record, I got to say, is uh, I've been listening, uh, especially if you love that 70s rock, but it's it's like the soulful piano-driven 70s rock. It's not... Yes. You say 70s rock, that can mean a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the touchstone is Elton John, uh, even yes. more than Billy Joel. It's, it's Elton John. I just hear that. And that one song, uh, that ballad towards the end, Don't oh, Let It Weigh Heavy on Your Heart. Oh, man. Yes. Yeah. That is a powerful song. Beautiful Inc- ballad incredible tune and yeah I, I would recommend going to see Butch the coolest thing about him is that every record every record has his songwriting chops on it but every record is different like he 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 like you can tell he's listening to different music every time like he produced a Brian Fallon record from Gaslight and he did an album right after that that you could tell he was producing Brian Fallon and you know like he's just Every record's different. If I was if I was to recommend two, it would be the Spade, which is my my favorite album. I think is is his best one, and then Afraid of Ghosts, and very different ones. Very rock and roll, the Spade, and the other one's very like sort of quiet and sad, which is um, which is uh, Afraid of Ghosts. But but great artist, one of my an all time favorite of mine. So. Yeah, and we did le- letters early on. I was aware yes. of Butch Walker. I don't think if you pop music, you can't be unaware of Butch Walker just because of his production work. Yeah. Uh, but that was the first time I'd really gone into one of his records. I think that, is that his like second, that's one of his early ones, right? The one Letters? Yeah. 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 Left is a really strong album as well. And he was, he was in a 90s like sort of pop rock band called Marvelous 3 who had one hit called Freak of the Week, but a lot of great tunes. Like they, the, and there's one, one of their Ready, Sex, Go, I think is not on Spotify for some reason, um, but a great band before that. This this tattoo on my hand, that is the album cover for um, American Love Story, which is the album uh. that he put out. And it's a watercolor version of it, the album he put out during the uh, pandemic. Um, but great record, great, great artist. Go see him. Speaking of great artists, legendary artists, this made me think that we should get, didn't Michael Rappaport do a Tribe Called Quest documentary? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. We could, I... We could get Michael Rappaport on the pod. We could Are you kidding get, me? No, we could Why haven't we done it already? Uh, we, I was thinking about <laughs> it this morning, honestly, when I was listening to the album again. I was like, we should get Rappaport on the pod. We could definitely get Rappaport on the pod. He would wow. come on for sure. I yeah. mean, that's a... Uh, 
That that would be amazing. And he's, he's a, so intense. He loves podcasting, first off. I know yes, that. Yes, fucking loves it. Loves it, <laughs> loves it. And a brilliant podcaster. Even if you don't like him, he understands the medium oh, just yeah. about as well as anybody on earth. Um, a brilliant podcaster. He's also definitely... one of the all-time great social media ranters. I mean, his yep. rants are epic. <laughs> yep. epic. And hey, by the way, the guy has had a phenomenal acting career. He's worked with everyone. Yes, uh, going, incredible Especially going back career. to the days. Yeah, like yep. Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert yep. De Niro. He's worked with uh, every, seemingly every great actor and director he's worked with, especially in the early part of his career. Ice Cube. He worked with Ice, Ice Cube. Cube. Ice yeah. Cube, yeah. 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 And he was doing that big three thing too, I think. He was a kind of the sideline yep. reporter. Yep. Oh, uh, man. Yeah, so, <laughs> so all right. So Tribe Called Quest, Low End Theory. Babylon, they're looking for excuses. Game for the buzzer who kicked it to the mooses. Lame as a brain could be golly G. If you see a shrink, he'll charge you a fee. If you see me, you see the fee is nothing. We will feeble patience, all backs, no fronting. What is a party if it doesn't really rock? What is a poet, all balls, no cock? What is a war if it doesn't have a general? What's Channel 9 if it doesn't have a senior? What is so this is a record I imagine you knew and you yep. spent time with. Yeah, was was I have not listened to it in at least a decade. Maybe oh, more. Wow. Yeah. So it was good to good to go back to. There's so much music. I feel like there's so I actually went back to Metallica and Justice for All for some reason about a month ago. And I was like, fuck, I forgot how awesome this was. Yeah. And that's <laughs> one of the like an album that I love and I just had oh wait, we did it for this. We did it for the pod, yeah, right? I, I hadn't listened to it in like so long. So I hadn't listened to Low End Theory in a very long time. So it was good to dive back in. Yeah, I'm amazed this is the first, it took us this long to get to a Tribe record, because I would say for me, Tribe Called Quest is one of my favorite groups of all time. Not just hip-hop, any genre, a, a band that I just, when I first, when I, when I go back to the time when I can recall really getting interested in music, or music having a, a more of a presence in my life, I think about this group and this album. And even just, I think it was a perfect inflection point for me, I guess this came out when I was like in junior high. Or not mm -hmm. in junior high. Yeah, I guess junior high, maybe sixth grade, seventh grade. And I was interested in jazz from the very beginning. And I kind of discovered hip-hop and jazz at the same time. So this was like the perfect combination for me. When this, mm -hmm. when I got introduced to this record, it just, it covered so many bases that I found interesting musically. Unquestionably one of the greatest, most influential groups of all time. I think they were innovative lyrically and in their vocal approach. And I think I'd be hard pressed to think of two MCs who complement each other better than Fife and Q Tip. I mean, talk about a whole greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah. These two guys together, the way they just played off one another, uh, the way they complemented each other vocally, lyrically, even in the content of what they would say of their lyrics, just phenomenal. And then also they were innovative in their production style, especially the way they utilized sampling. Because they brought that jazz influence. Uh, but they also brought in that 70s soul, rock, and funk influence. And I think, I'll get to it later when we get in this record, but also their work with Bob Power, the way they, there were certain things they did and the way they sampled that made this record sound unlike any other and makes it still hold up, you know, 30 plus years later. So give a little backdrop. They were formed in 1985 in Queens, New York. Q-Tip on vocals and production. Fife Dog on vocals. Ali Shaheed Muhammad on turntables and co-production. And early on for a time, Jerobi White. Jerobi White was there for the first record and had kind of left by the time they did Low End Theory. He comes back, he came back around at a few different points, but for most of their run, 
especially as recording artists, it was really Q-Tip, Fife Dog, and Ali Shaheed Muhammad. Now, Q-Tip and Fife were childhood friends. They grew up in the St. Albans neighborhood of Queens, New York. Initially, Q-Tip performed as MC Love Child. And, <laughs> I did not and, know that. And mind you, this is like while, while these guys are in high school or right. just oh, okay. at a high Yeah, okay. they were young, young. They started young. They initially performed a rapper DJ duo with he and Ali Shaheed Muhammad. And at a, at a point in time, Fife kind of joined up part-time. Then he and Jerobi White joined full-time, so they became a quartet. Started making some demos. For a time, they went by Crush Connection. Then they went by Quest. And then eventually, the Jungle Brothers, another great hip-hop group from that era, eventually uh, came up with the name A Tribe Called Quest. By the way, Crush Connection, definitely like late 80s, early 90s oh, hip-hop yeah. group Yeah, name. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's perfect. Like, And actually, if they had just stayed Crush Connection, it would have worked. I think it could have worked. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Crush you know? Connection would be great. Yeah. <laughs> but Jungle Brothers were an important group in that time. Q-Tip actually made his first few you know, official appearances guesting on their records. And that was the era of Na the Native Tongues Collective. Uh, De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, Jungle Brothers, Queen Latifah, Moni Love. Those artists were all in of, oh, I guess uh, Rebel is a fan of the tribe? <laughs> this motherfucker, <laughs> is, man. Is he all right? <laughs> he just he just never gets tired of this. <laughs> well, I, I like that he's a fan of uh, Low End Theory. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> what a fucking lunatic, man. That I, was I, a I, very, like, that was like a rapid fire bark. He normally yeah, that's like what he, does, yeah, he's. You know he does that? When somebody's walking by our house on the fucking sidewalk. Like he just. Just kind of hyping him up. Just kind of hyping him up. As I just go have by. no idea what his fucking deal is. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad, you know, at eight years old, he's still just fucking chugging away at barking like a fucking <laughs> lunatic at nothing. But anyway, continue. Sorry. Well, I'm glad he's a fan of low end theory because I like yes, that he, he loves will wait for certain records that we're discussing. And that's yeah, it'll in. just go completely crazy. <laughs> yeah. But that Native Tongues Collective, all of those bands, De La, De La Soul, Jungle Brothers, Tribe, Queen Latifah, they were all innovative, I think, vocally and lyrically and what they did musically. And there was just this positive message in the music that I think was really inspiring. Uh, and then kind of during that time, 88, 89, 90, 91, kind of that golden era of hip hop. Now in 89, Tribe Called Quest signed a demo deal with Geffen. Geffen ultimately passed, which I'm sure they came to regret. But that demo generated a great deal of label interest, and they mm. ultimately signed with Jive Records. Debut record, People's Instinctive Travels and Paths of Rhythm, was released in spring 1990. Is that a record that you spent much time no. with, that first one? No. The only two albums, I've, the only two Tribe albums I've ever listened to are uh, Low End Theory and... Um, Midnight Marauders and Midnight Marauders. Yeah. yeah, those are the two undeniable masterpieces. Yeah, uh, the first record, People's Instinctive Travels and Paths of Rhythm, is a good one. It received critical acclaim. It it was the first album to achieve the coveted five mics rating from the Source magazine. It didn't reach the creative heights uh, musically or ly lyrically of Low End Theory or Midnight Marauders, but it set them off on that trajectory. You had some of the core elements, jazz, soul, and rock samples the positive message, the sort of storytelling style that they brought to it. The one thing on that record that I think made it pale somewhat in comparison to Low End Theory and the Midnight Marauders was Fife didn't have as much of a presence on that album. Uh, and I think Fife it is was such a good balance to Q-Tip. So good, so yeah. good. Uh, just such a great combination. 
I think they were always at their best when Fife was at his best. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with Low End Theory. He, he he took a bigger role vocally in the group, and that's when it really came in, when they really came into their own. Now, Low End Theory drops in on September 24th, 1991. I mean, landmark album. I think people who love hip-hop, people, people who just love music in general would say this was... This was a landmark album that I think moved the needle in many, many ways because you had this sound that was, it was hip hop, it was bringing jazz into it, it was sparse, it was minimalist, but it, it had a commercial appeal. Mm-hmm. You know, every one of their records went gold and platinum. They weren't some, they weren't an underground group, but they had that underground sensibility and they really just pushed the envelope. That record went gold, this, this uh, low end theory went gold in 92. And we'll circle back to this more in depth in a second, but just to give a brief overview Midnight Marauders released in November 9, 1993, another masterpiece. Some people would say that is their best album. And I think you could certainly make that argument. Uh, you could argue that for sure, yeah. Yeah, it's an incredible album. I think they built even further upon the interplay between Q-Tip and Fife. Uh, you know, they still had the jazz underpinning, but there was a little more of a soul and funk influence in the production and the sampling. And then after that, they made three more records. Be- Beats, Rhymes, and Life in 96, The Love Movement in 98, and after 98, they effectively split up. They did come together and make one more record. We've got it from here. Thank you for, for your service in, in 2016. But unfortunately, like many great groups yeah. and great creative partnerships, after Midnight Marauders, the tensions between Q-Tip and Fife just grew to an untenable level. And unf- it's, it's so interesting because I feel like we've discussed other bands like this. When people have this incredible creative collaboration that really does become a whole greater than the sum of the parts. It transcends them individually. You often see this, that after a point in time, the egos or something or whatever, the interpersonal dynamic can't handle it. So maybe some of that tension is what makes it great Mm. at first, and then there's a tipping point where it implodes. And unfortunately, that's what happened with with, uh, Q-Tip and Fife Done. That kind of marked the end of the group. I'm gonna read a quote from Fife. Kind of just give a little insight about how how he felt sort of ultimately marginalized and it's somewhat cast aside by Q-Tip and the rest of the group and even their management. Now, this is from an interview he did with a writer named Linda Bruton in a site called listd.net. This is from 2006. He said, I really felt like with Midnight Marauders, I came into my own. By the time Beats, Rhymes, and Life came out, I started feeling like I didn't fit in anymore. Music Mm -hmm. felt like a job, like I was just doing it to pay bills. I never want my music to feel like just a job. They would schedule studio time at the last minute. I'd catch a plane from Atlanta to be in New York. And when I got to the studio, no one would be there. I mean, talk about that. <laughs> that's that's cold. I mean, that's a, that's a you know, if you're in a band and your band members do something like that to you, it's hard not to feel angry. So it's justified. He said, they would have canceled the session without telling me. Seemed like the management was concerned with other folks, not me, but I never lost my confidence. So... Now, in the Rappaport documentary, you know, Beats, Rhymes, and Life, The Travels of a Tribe Called Quest, which came out in 2011, he documents some of those tensions. Now, that you've watched the documentary, I imagine. No, I've never watched it. Oh, really? Okay, uh, it's, yeah. it's good. I know there was some controversy or some conflict between him and Q-Tip about it, like Q-Tip wasn't... Yeah, I remember that when it came out. Yeah, yeah he wasn't really happy about it. it it's an interesting documentary because it does document their working relationship, you get some of their history, but it goes heavy on the conflict between the two of them. Uh, but towards the end, you sort of do see them starting to reconcile, which is ultimately what happened. So it's a well-made documentary, but I know there was 
some ill feelings about it afterwards. But it's sort of documented this thing that I'm talking about where you see it in the documentary that, you know, in a sense, Fife sort of felt marginalized. And at that time, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, around the time they split up, they were even taking shots at each other in some of their solo records, you know, whether they were veiled or not. There was some, seemed like there was some real animosity there. But ultimately, in the late 2000s and the early 2010s, they did begin to reconcile. They started touring again. And they did work on one final album. Now, sadly, Fife passed in March of 2016. He battled diabetes for most of his adult life. He was only 45, which is heartbreaking because I feel like a guy like him still had so much left in him, but it was really sad. And you, you see him struggling with that some in the Rapport documentary as well. But luckily, before, before you know, Fife passed, they had started working on this album. They kind of did it quietly. Mm. And uh, it was actually ultimately released a matter of months after he passed. But it was just cool that in the end, they did start touring together, they reconciled, and they did make that one last record. And as far as the other records, I will say, hands down, their two best albums are this one, Low End Theory and Midnight Marauders. But if you like Tribe, it's worth going and checking out the other four albums. You 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 can find things that you like in every single one of those records because I think they were a band that even if they weren't at their best, always there was always some magic. There was some yeah. magic in that collaboration. And I think Ali Shaheed Muhammad behind the scenes was part of that as well. There was just this great nucleus of creativity. Now getting into this record, give us some of the highlights. Check the rhyme. Back in the days on the boulevard, I we used to kick routines and the presence was fitting. It was I, the abstract. And me, the five-footer. I kicks the mad style, so step off the Frankfurter. Yo, Fife, you remember that routine that we used to make spiffy like Mr. Clean? Um, um, a tidbit, um, a smidgen. I don't get the message, so you got to <laughs> okay. run the pigeon. It's one of the highlights, I would say. That's the first uh, song that kind of introduced me to Tribe. And this is like Tribe at their absolute best. You get these vocal trade-offs between Tip and Fife, and they have this kind of smooth, laid-back swagger that only they, that only they can do in this very special way. You get that on the uh, on this track. There's a horn sample on the chorus, but other than that, like as on as it is on most of the record, the production is sparse. You know, it's mainly yeah. drums and bass, and there's a few sounds, but it's you, they leave a lot of space just for the vocals to to carry the thing. Yeah, it sounds. I don't, I'm not saying it's dated. There's some things that sound like the time. and Right, early 90s, I, yeah, uh, classic hip-hop, yeah. This album just sounds like the time. Like, it, it puts you, and part of that is the sparseness. I mean, some of, so many of the biggest records of this time were produced things this way, and it sounded that way, and it's, it, it's not till you get to late, but even hearing, you know, leaders of the new school, like another, not as good as Tribe Called Quest, but like in that same pocket, obviously oh, yeah. hearing them oh, yeah. on the record is cool. Um, like even the, the few featurings they have on the record is very of the moment. And I think the production is very of the moment in a really positive way. Yeah. And I would maybe say that's a good point. If you had to AB the production of this one in Midnight Marauders, I think maybe Midnight Marauders, some of the production wouldn't sound as dated necessarily as far as it's more lush i think yes uh, and yes. and then than this is but i i did part of that i think makes this almost like better as a right. time capsule do you know <laughs> yeah, what I'm there's saying? a nostalgia to it there's a nostalgia yeah. to it and in this song part of what i love about this song i think this is what really there were so many things about them that i that i love but uh the verses themselves are a nostalgia trip in this song mm -hmm. 
you know, yeah. they're talking about starting out together, you know, just hanging out, rhyming, doing their thing. Kind of the you you get a little glimpse into the early days of their like creative partnership. Yeah. And and if you love this band, that's like it's just like, oh, that's those are the good moments because you know later on it just you know, it's kind of disappointing in a way that they sort of fell out the way they did. Because yeah. who knows, if they hadn't, they, there might have been more records. And someone like Q-Tip is always pushing the envelope production-wise. I mean, he's a brilliant producer and just musical mastermind. But one other thing I'll note about this song, which is crazy when you consider how sparse it is, this song uses no fewer than seven samples. Hmm. Which is crazy, right? I mean, yeah. you, there's not even enough, I mean, how, how does, how is that possible? There's a mini Ripperton sample. There's an average white band sample. There's a Grover Washington sample. There's a Dalton Dubari sample. There's a Bismarcky sample, Brother Jack McDuff sample, and a Lafayette Afro, Afro rock band sample. Now, and I got all this from, I've talked up this site before, but if you want the treasure trove of who sampled what, like oh, which you, song you have was mentioned used, this. Yeah. whosampled.com, it's insane. Uh, you look at any song, it will break down for you all the samples within it, and conversely, it'll take each song and let you know where it was sampled. Because uh, especially some of the classic soul records, they've been sampled like a hundred times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's interesting. But I think it, it's a testament to their creativity that they just took these little bits and pieces of these tracks and made something totally fresh. Another standout is Jazz We've Got. Stirred from a young with a laid back tongue. The aim is to succeed and achieve at 21. Just like Ringling Brothers, our days in a sound. Captivate the mass cause the pros is profound. Do it for the strong, we do it for the meek. Boom it in your boom it in your boom it in your Jeep. Or your Honda or your Beamer or your Legend or your Benz. The rave of the town to your foes and your friends. So push it That was the song that I think really connected with me. Cause again, they went heavy on the jazz sound on this one. Really puts the jazz influence to the forefront. Again, great swagger and smoothness on the verses. This is like a classic tribe beat. You get the horn sample in between the verses, and then the core verse, the core track, is really just a drum groove and organ pad. And the organ pad is a sample from Jimmy McGriff, who's a legendary jazz organist from Philadelphia. If you're a fan of that sort of jazz organ style, he's definitely worth checking out. I'll say one other thing, because we talked about this with Guru and Jazzmatez, and with Madlib as well. I love how artists like this, who have a broader reach commercially, have have been able to introduce younger audiences, uh, or at least at that time, younger audiences to jazz musicians that these artists, you know, these audiences probably otherwise wouldn't catch on to or listen to. But that happened with me and Tribe because I would get curious, and I would try to research like who who yeah. are they sampling here, and then you go down the rabbit hole of listening to that band. I think that was a big part of their appeal. And the fact that they could sample sort of obscure jazz and soul records and still make music that was commercial and that was on the charts was was pretty impressive, kind of rare. I mm-hmm. don't think, I almost can't picture that happening now, you know, with that kind of approach, that kind of ethos. But at that time, it just worked. And of course, one other track. Well, by the way, it's so, everything's so litigious now. I don't. Yeah, that's true. That, that, like, you know, I, I had a sample in a, like, you know, the Rice Ricky Sanchez, Amos made like a stupid little one minute song to play in the beginning. Right. And it had Which a sample. Which was a great track, that previous intro, right? Yeah, but it's Curtis just like, Mayfield, I'm yeah. terrified of uh, somebody <laughs> finding, and not, not, by the way, not that somebody who wrote music shouldn't be compensated if somebody uses that music to make money. I, I, of course. I understand that, but that would, it makes it, 
you know, you sometimes you look at the credits on rap songs now. I, I remember when we were trying to like legally, we legally got a, a rap song for the intro of the Ricky, uh, Run the Jewels song. And like we agreed what we were going to pay. And then all of a sudden I started getting like letters from like, different people that we also owed because there were oh, so many, so many yeah. people that who get Co-writers credit. on the track, yeah. Correct, yeah. just because there was a sample in there. But anyway, continue, I'm sorry. I don't yeah, want to talk well, about well, To your point there, yeah, you'll look at modern pop records, uh, yep. hip hop, R&B records, and there'll be like 10 co-writers on it. Yes, yeah. Uh, so everyone, yeah, so if even half of those people you know, aren't covered right away. Everyone's publishing company, if it gets traction, is eventually (laughs) going to pursue it. So uh, I think this was around the time, this was post Paul's Boutique, so it was already a thing at this time. So, but with with Jive behind them, they probably had the ability to get these clearances. Uh, And, you know, they were selective. The one track, you know, uh, Check the Rhyme, where they had seven, I think that was unusual. Usually it was a sample or two when you look it up. Scenario, that's one other track I got to mention. Last track on the album. This one uses a Jimi Hendrix sample and a Brother Jack McDuff sample. And once again, just sparse driving groove. It's basically a drum beat and a bass line. Yeah. And a little bit of an organ sample here and there. But every verse is memorable. Uh, just the trade-offs between all the MCs, between Tribe and leaders of the new school is amazing. But you have to say, in the end, Busta Rhymes oh. kind of stole the show on, the, yeah, on this on. one. I mean, that that I, th- I think that song, that appearance, that guest spot, that was a big reason he became a star in his own right. That is was the launching pad. I mean, people knew leaders of the new school, but they weren't even as commercially viable, say, as Tribe Called Quest or De La Soul was initially. But that one verse in that song and everything he does there, that was like, okay, this guy's a star. He's going to have his own record. He's going to have his own career, you know? It's a backpack rap anthem uh, scenario. Like uh, yeah, yeah. people don't use that that phrase, I guess, anymore. Backpack rap was is like the phrase that you would use in the 90s for a hip hop artist that would be able to pull off Lollapalooza, basically. Is that right. like an easy way to sort it of describe it? It was the it? underground, it, it was purpose, the... the I think the sensibility behind that was that it wasn't mainstream. It wasn't on the charts. It no, was no, no. Mixtapes and there yep. was a live component too. But you're right; those groups could cross over and play with rock bands. I don't think the album's quite good enough to do. But the leaders of the new school album, Time, is really good. Like they just, I, I would, I would venture to say. And maybe it's just because it's not quite as good, but there's something about leaders in the new school that feels like grimier and a little more, like not more hip hop than, than Tribe Called Quest, but like it, you may, and a lot of it probably is just Busta Rhymes. Yeah. Like his, his, his presentation. He's so unmistakable. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they only had, I think there was one single from that album. Well, uh, one single from that album, but What's Next was on that album and Classic Material, both great tunes are on that album. I don't know if I could do a whole Leaders of the New School <laughs> album on the pod, but but they're a, a fun group. And you're right, Buster Rhymes crushes that. Buster Rhymes had like 
a eight year run of Ooh, just unstoppable fucking hits, man. Like yeah, that yeah. dude had hits and his delivery was so wild to be a, like a hit maker, you know, but whew, man, yeah, totally launched him. That song. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, and you know, when I think of him, I also think of Missy Elliott too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Two artists who are just so unique and so creative in the way they approached what they what they or the way they approach what they do vocally and then the way they incorporate that with the production. Yep. Uh, yep. It's hard to think of two artists that are that are more outside of the box but also were able to have big commercial success. Yeah, totally. Those that's a rare thing to have that type of sort of unique edge to something and have it hit. One other thing I'll mention about this record I kind of mentioned it early on, but uh, Bob Power deserves a lot of credit for this album. He was a great collaborator with Tribe, mm. legendary engineer, and also a good musician. One big thing he did on this album that if you A-B with other recordings at the time, you'll see the difference. He went through and removed the static and surface noise from the vinyl samples. Wow. So I think when you listen to these samples... It's cleaner. It's cleaner. There's more of a yeah. clarity, and then in turn, there's more of like a... A dimension and 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 it, it grooves in a deeper way and you, if you and you you can hear it on other sample heavy records of the time you'll kind of hear the the static hits which is something i actually like it can be a really pleasing thing but he he kind of cleared those sounds out and i think it it just helped expand the sound and it bring a clarity and just sort of create a space and dimension in their recordings that was singular at that time so i mean this is I love Tribe. Uh, I would say, you know, if you love this one, then Midnight Marauders, then go back to the first one, uh, and then uh, it's all it's all worth listening to. But this, these two, this one and Midnight Marauders, stone cold masterpieces. Yeah, just a few other notes on it that I think make it stick out. The entire album is so warm sounding for an album that is full of samples. It feels like an analog recorded album. It feels incredibly warm in a way that when you listen to current hip hop, it like it just doesn't touch. Like there's, it's almost impossible, I think, to get there. Something small, but the songs are all like the perfect length. Yeah. They, they like they almost feel like they could all be 35 seconds longer but they're not and uh it like it it keeps the album like moving in in a way that you don't always see like you know songs that are 342 that maybe on another album might be 417 or something but like right. it feels like every song hits like that like 330 or 340 pocket which I think is like an awesome length of a song. Um I'm going to sound old, <laughs> but rappers at this time, like enunciated in a way that you could understand what they were saying. And for a medium where the words are so important, I think that is so meaningful. And there's so much, actually it's not even just hip hop, but like there's so much hip hop that I hear today that I just can't like make out what they're saying and I want to so badly, but but both Q-Tip and Fife, they are um, 
they have a, a recognizable voice. It's not like they're, they, they sound standard or anything. They don't sound like anybody else, especially Q-Tip. Q-Tip must, might be one of the most singular sounding rappers of all yeah. time. There's no but one you, else you, you can compare him to, really. No, absolutely not. But you, to your point earlier, you don't need him for a whole song. Like having Fife in right. there is good, but like they both, you understand every word. And I think that's so important with a, uh, a, a, a genre like hip hop. Um, Excursions is the first song on the record, and it is a perfect first song of a record. Come on, everybody, let's get with the fly mode. Still got room on the truck, load of black gold. Listen to the rhymes to get a mental picture of this black man, black woman picture. Why do I say that? Because I gotta speak the truth, man. Doing what we feel for the music is the proof, and planet on the ground, the act is so together. Gonna fight strong, you need leverage to sever. We said that with Black Keys, but it's a an awesome first song um scenario is great and i like uh show business is like yeah. the song of, about the, music the industry commentary. Yeah. yes <laughs> yep do you want to be in the business the business the ups and downs with the whole the business getting funded on at shows the business people gotta stick their nose in the business. yo i gotta speak on the cesspool it's the rap industry and it ain't that cool only if you're on stage or if you're speaking to your people Ain't no one you equal, especially um, the Where's the, uh, here's, so this, this comes from, this is one of the few songs that has a guest spot on. This comes from Lord Jamar. They're giving, they're giving you the business and putting on a show. You're a million dollar man that ain't got no dough, but you got to hold tickets to a backstage to a show sedated in the fact that they elated time pass and your ass say, where's my loot? The reply is a kick in the ass and a leg from a leg and a boot. Like... <laughs> So bad. You're right. You know, every, I like how selective they are with the guests, but every yep. guest that they have has a it. monster verse like that Abs- one. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a good, it's a great, like great couple of posse cuts on this. And they're, they're both great, great album, great album to, uh, to go back to. I, I truly hadn't listened to it in a, a long time. Really awesome. Really yeah, it's awesome. a deep sense of nostalgia. I remember having the cassette for this and, just that that cassette was so important to me. You know, back then, you you called it a tape. A tape, right? Yeah, I had you the tape. tape. Yeah, I wore that tape out. I yep. wore that tape out, and uh, yeah, some some music. You know, we talk about this. It it just connects you to your memories or a certain feeling mm-hmm. of a certain time. And this takes me back to I don't know, being twelve, thirteen years old, and this was just a revelation. This yeah. album, this band. So yeah, it was really cool to revisit and. Uh, yeah, I had, just like you had with the Metallica record, I hadn't listened to this in a while, and I was like, "Man, I still love this album." It just, <laughs> it just, it just resonates in in a deep way. And I, maybe at some point we should do Midnight Marauders too, somewhere down the road, because that to me is uh, probably musically, lyrically speaking, that their peak. You know, yeah. uh, even if I have more of a sentimental connection to this one, but that mm-hmm. is just a Stone Cold Mass. But yeah, amazing band. Amazing band. Good choice. Good choice. Again, if you want to suggest an album, uh, Apple Podcast Reviews or CarlAndrewRecordClub.com. And once again, we'll see you for the live Carl November 19th at World Cafe. For tickets, go to MutluSounds.com. Or the, the link is also in, you don't have to go anywhere. The link is in the description of this pod. So uh, we'll talk to you next time. That's it. Stay free, my goose. Just going to let the dog bark us, bark us out of this. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking asshole. <laughs>